Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello. And we are really stretching the old brain boxes today, aren't we? I would say so. This is, uh, we're doing, we're tackling an album that's a little bit out of uh, my realm, for sure. I don't know about yours. Definitely mine. So, first of all, welcome to Audio Judo. Yes. Podcast of music discovery. Ooh. We've been around for a little over a year now, have a catalog of 38 episodes, plus this one, on music topics ranging from David Bowie. Toad the Wet Sprocket to Pink Floyd. We've done some interviews with musical artists like The Cold Stairs, Daniel Victor from Never Ending White Lights, as well as one with Aubrey Powell, the artistic mind behind the cover of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and hundreds of other albums you may recognize. If you are new to Audio Judo, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of our other episodes, and I'm sure you'll find something that interests you. As a reminder, we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And you can find other music-based podcasts at their website, pantheonpodcasts.com. With an S. With an S, that's correct. So, way out of our comfort zone, eh? Yes. So, we're prepared to talk about country music. Yes, we are. I would take that back. We are not prepared (laughs) to talk about country music. We are going to pretend to know what we're talking about uh, in near proximity to some country music. Admittedly, I know very little about country music. I do as well. Okay, good. Uh, More specifically, we are talking about No Fences, the second album by country music legend, and I would say all-around music legend, Mm. Garth Brooks. Honestly, I never listened to country music um, until I started dating my wife way back in 1992. Country music that I was familiar with, uh, and those are big air quotes, because (laughs) familiar is way too strong of a word, it was limited to like hee-haw and (laughs) some stuff I may have heard on... PBS or something unintentionally. Wow. Um, We didn't listen into my house at all. I never listened to it on the radio. Occasionally when we were camping, other people would be listening to it. Like, so it was a really strange kind of world for me. I would say the closest I ever got as a child was my mom's John Denver eight tracks. Ooh, okay. Which he's country music adjacent. Yes. More folk country. The names I was familiar with, and I would say kind of obliquely, you know, were names like Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, George Jones, Willie Nelson. You know, I knew some songs, uh, but these were things I heard more or less through popular culture. It wasn't something I listened to. I was familiar with Dolly Parton. I was familiar with Kenny Rogers. I was familiar with Alabama, but I didn't listen to them nor actively seek them out. Hmm. It was kind of like a subculture of America. You know, I didn't really, didn't hear it. Yeah. And and the stuff that I did hear was more a popular crossover. Yes. So maybe you get uh, Kenny and Dolly together and it becomes like a- Like a Islands in the Stream. That's the one. Yeah. And it becomes a popular hit, but I, you didn't, it, became, it was a popular song. I didn't even recognize it as a, that's a country song yeah. that became popular. It was just- a popular song. So it was really easy to stereotype back then. You know, you pictured Minnie Pearl and her hat with a tag on it. Yeah. And associated everything with Grand Old Opry. Country music, 
Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. That was it. Well, you were at that time, too, where in the 60s and 70s, there had kind of been this upswing in country. And, you know, everything was Westerns on TV. And then it swung back down. And throughout the 80s and 90s, you know, it, it stayed down, basically. Oh, until yeah. Until it started to come back up in the mid-90s. Weren't a lot of Westerns on TV in the no. 80s. That I can recall. And so, I mean, you were about Bonanza and Gunsmoke were were done. Yeah. You were about as far away from it as you could get. I I would would think so. Yeah. I grew up, my grandma loves Kenny Rogers. Loves Loves the gambler, huh? Loves the gambler. So I was really familiar with Kenny Rogers. Beyond that, really not a lot. Can I assume that your grandma knows when to hold them? Uh, She also knows when to fold them. Okay. That's just... Want to be sure. Usually after they come out of the dryer, but before you put them in the cupboard. <laughs> That's just a good time. Fun fact for everybody out there. So country music, let's just start kind of at the beginning here. So for the most part. History lesson. Country music in the 80s and before was a very regional thing. It was heard predominantly on AM radio stations and even more remotely on rural AM radio stations. That all started to change in the late to mid 80s. And like most good stories, things began to take shape like at a confluence of time. In the mid to late 80s, the FCC released the 8090 docket, which led to a significant expansion of FM radio stations in the 80s. So they added a a number of high fidelity fidelity FM signals to rural and suburban areas. Hmm. Uh, At this point, country music was mainly heard on rural AM radio stations. The expansion of FM helped country music which migrated to FM from the AM band as AM became overcome by talk radio. And country music stations that stayed on AM developed the classic country format or old country, Hank Williams and stuff like that. Uh, In addition, at this same time, more and more FM easy listening stations, which for some reason is now called beautiful music stations. They don't call them easy listening anymore. They're called beautiful music. What? Yeah. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, no more easy listening. It's beautiful music now. Or Yacht Rock. Well, I'm fine with Yacht Rock, but... So they began to abandon that format and started playing more country music. Because country was beginning to become more and more available to the consumer, producers in Nashville began to polish the product a little bit more. Then in 1990, Billboard, which had published a country music chart since 1940 that was based on sales changed their methodology for tracking singles. Only airplay was used to determine chart performance. So all these things in motion, right? Yeah. They're not going to base it on single sales anymore. They're only basing it on how often your record gets played on country radio. And then a young man from Oklahoma was poised to take this music world over. The perfect time. Everything comes together at the perfect time, right? So Troil Garth Brooks. What a fun name. Troyal. Troyal. Troyal Garth Brooks. It was his father's name too, right? Yes. Born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1962. And one of the more interesting things about his upbringing and something uh, that would certainly influence his live performances was how little he was actually interested in country music at all growing up. He was a rock and roll fan. Yeah. If you have Sirius XM radio, uh, Garth has his own channel uh, that he personally curates the music for. And he plays his music, naturally, as one would. He plays some country, and he plays everything else. He plays Eagles. He plays Elton John. He plays Bob Seger. plays James Taylor. He plays Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars and stuff like that. He's a music fan. Yeah. And he's influenced by musicians and performers and entertainers. And according to him, he listened to George Jones when he was young, and that was about it for country music. He didn't really listen to anything else. Uh, And then in 1981, he heard Unwound by George Strait, uh, Strait's debut single, and uh, he decided that he wanted to play country music after hearing that particular song. You're familiar with the book Outliers, correct, Kyle, by Malcolm Gladwell? Yes. So the premise behind the book is that most people that reach uh, reach extreme success in their chosen field do so because they've spent 10,000 or more hours practicing and performing their task the right way. It has to be the right way. Yes. That number of hours has been disputed, but whatever. A lot. It's a lot of hours. People like the Beatles or Bill Gates or Michael Jordan become the best of the best because of the amount of time they are willing to devote to the craft, much like my extensive research for every one of these episodes. Yes. Uh, Just so everybody knows, Matthew puts about 500 hours into each episode. Into every episode. I put about 35 minutes. If that. 
yeah. Sometimes less. Sometimes less. Uh, anyway, Garth is very much like that. He consumed consumed so much musical knowledge and set his mind on playing and playing and playing a lot. He played in his at his college. He played in his dorm rooms. He played in the cafeteria of the school that he of OSU, Oklahoma State University. Uh, he played at a bar called Wild Willie Saloon <laughs> in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and that was where he cut his teeth, more or less, performing everything, rock, folk, country. And he began to name, make a name for himself, and word spread about his stage presence. Uh, if you've never seen him, Kyle, live. I have not seen him live. It's amazing. He has this knack, and it's not something that you can teach for making everyone, even people in the back row, feel like he's singing directly to them. Cool. And it's just, so I was in an arena with 19,000 other people, and I felt like I was the only one in that room that was paying attention and it, that he was actually communicating to. And it, it feels personal, and you can't show someone how to do that. You either have that or you don't. So 19,000 people, that was one of his small shows. Yeah, it's a tiny one. It was, it was at uh, T-Mobile. Yes, it's small, very small. So uh, in 1985, entertainment attorney Rod Phelps drove from Dallas to see Brooks in Stillwater and would eventually offer to produce Brooks' first demo uh, at his urging. And with some of the money uh, that he had, he moved to Nashville to make it big. Now, that's one version of the story that I've heard. Hmm. Uh, on the documentary, which is on the Netflix, uh, about his life, it's called uh, The Road I'm On, which is an excellent documentary. If you're interested. Uh, Brooks says that it was actually a bunch of local bar people that funded the trip. He calls them his angels because they sacrificed for his dream and expected nothing in return. Huh. Brooks met with an agent while he was in Nashville and was so discouraged by the machine of the industry and the fact that he was completely out of his depths uh, that he returned to Oklahoma within 24 hours of getting there. Wow. Yeah, it's a quick trip. Yeah. And he ended up hiding out at his parents' house for months because he was so afraid to have to face the people that supported him and that he, you know, felt like he would have let them down to some degree. However, they never asked for their money back. All they asked was, are you going back? Are you going to go try again? So hmm. he did. He and his wife, then wife, Sandy, would return to Nashville two years later where he would start paying his dues in that town. One thing about this world of country music that I find interesting is the songwriting aspect mm -hmm. of it. So I'm more of a rock guy, and for the most part, the band that records the record is also the songwriters that wrote the record as well. Yeah. Country music is similar to pop music, however. There, there's a very pronounced like dividing line between performer and songwriter. Mm -hmm. uh, pop music acts like Madonna or Britney Spears will go into a record and be given hundreds of songs to choose from, and we'll make an album from that. Uh, country music is similar. For me, a rock album, because it's written by the same performer, becomes a really clear reflection of the lyricist and or band, and you begin to learn things about them, who they are, what kind of people they are, from the lyrics that you hear album after album, progressing or not progressing. Uh, and country music like pop... The performer is choosing from many different songwriters' points of view, and they can really choose who they want to be and who they want to reflect. They have control. They could change between albums. They could change between songs what kind of persona they want to portray, and they can be very selective about creating that. At the beginning, Brooks was one of the many songwriters in Nashville. You know, he's just one of the thousands of songwriters. Yeah is writing and selling songs, hoping that his songs were chosen for other people to record. And he finally got his break in 1989 when he was able to record his debut album and tour with Kenny Rogers. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. No Fences is Brooks' second record. What can you tell me about it, Kyle? Uh, released August 27th, 1990. So it just had its 30th anniversary. Mm. So happy 30th. Happy 30th. It is the fourth best-selling album of the 90s in all genres. That is pretty fucking impressive. It is pretty impressive. 18 uh, million? 18 million copies of this sold. His first number one album, obviously. Spent over 30 weeks on number one on the Billboard country charts. Was RIA certified of over 18 million units, mm -hmm. like we just said. Also, just a side note, Garth Brooks' total uh, is certified sales. They claim it's 170 million albums. Yes. Uh, certified, it's 165.1 
which is pretty damn close. But it Approaching makes him, Beatles territory. Yes, it makes him the 19th uh, on the list of best-selling artists by album numbers, which is it's a lot of records. Pretty damn good. Uh, obviously, RAA Diamond Award for sales in excess of 10 million. Also, this album in particular, uh, CMA Album of the Year 1991, CMA Single of the Year uh, 1991 for Friends in Low Places, CMA Music Video of the Year for The Thunder Rolls, ACM Album of the Year 1991, ACM Single Record of the Year for Friends in Low Places, Billboard num- Country Album Number One 1991, Billboard Music Video Awards Best Country Male Video for The Thunder Rolls. Uh, AMA Favorite Album Country 1992, and AMA Favorite Single Country the fun, the, for the Thunder Rolls 1992. That is an impressive fucking list. It is. Of awards it, for one album. Right, and his first record didn't set the bar very low. The first record sold 10 million copies yeah. as well. So it's not like he, he could have just sat sat back and released an album of duds at that point. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered. It, but he went he went the other direction. And the most most notable thing about this um, noticeable thing for me about when I listen to this record, um, and it's something we'll cover in track by track, is how blue this record is. Yes. It's it's very down. And he could have made a very safe record with all kind of honky-tonk bar tunes and sold as many copies as he wanted to, but he yeah. did. He went the opposite direction, recorded a very personal set of songs, both his and others, and their melancholy... I think that's because he's a songwriter. Right? I think it's a I think he's never done that with an album cuz he could at this he could have at this point after this album he could have just been like, you know what, I can record whatever the hell I feel like yeah. and make money off of it. And he didn't do that. He stuck to performing and writing and performing other people's music that he actually wanted to do. Well, and it's like like I said what you can craft that persona. Yes. And he's being very Authentic, and I know it's a word you and I use a lot, but there's something to be said for the authenticity of I can do anything I want right now, yeah. but I'm going to do something that's important to me still, and I think it's a big deal. I also read that this this reached number one on the British country chart. I didn't even realize there was a British country chart. <laughs> it was uh, there were only three songs on it. Oh, so, well, so one of three. I did notice too that it. Uh, <laughs> It went uh, platinum in Ireland, mm. and I was like, wow, and then I realized platinum in Ireland is 75,000 records, which is still, for Ireland, that's pretty good. That's like one of every eight people. Yeah. I don't a know A lot many. of people own this album. No idea how many people still. are in Ireland. If you're listening out there, Ireland, which I know you are, I'm sorry. I don't Please know tell us people. how many people there are in Ireland. Just send me a quick... Uh, if you are a country fan from Ireland. Send me a quick email at info at audiojudo.com. Tell me how many people are in Ireland. So and if you're a fan of country music in Ireland, tell us what uh, what that's like. Yeah. I'd be curious to know. <laughs> really, I would. Like, honestly, that would be that would be fascinating for me to hear about. So but did you say it also reached number three on the Billboard chart? like The, the regular Billboard chart. And uh, stayed in the top re- 40... I did not have that number on here, but I did see that. And stayed in the top 40 for 126 weeks. Yeah. So it's okay. You, you know, it's an all right album. And you did mention that it was number one on the country chart. It stayed there so long that it was replaced only by his next record. <laughs> the, the record that knocked it, knocked No Fences off the top of the country chart, Rope in the Wind yeah. by Garth Brooks. So it shattered records. It courted yeah. controversy. And it made Garth Brooks a household name. Yeah. There's two other things I think we got to talk about. Well, Please do. Three, actually, that we got to talk oh about. Oh, my God. That's so many. This, three is so one, many. One of them's the album art. You want to talk about that first? I could find nothing except it's a picture. I found quite a bit of oh, it. So that's, good news. See, that's why we're a good team. So uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but most of Garth Brooks' album covers have the same theme. It's a picture of him. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it is his solo record. This is the this is the second in the first five that become, in my opinion, increasingly ridiculous. Okay. Because the first one, it's just it's young Garth Brooks and he's standing, he's wearing a big hat. Big hat, yeah. You know, in the in the fields. And then the next one, this one, is uh he's wearing it's black and white, but he's wearing this heavy striped shirt, big hat. It almost seems like it's tinted blue. It is. I feel like it, it might be just a little bit tinted Which could blue. be kind of telling. Right? But the next one after this, uh, no, uh, sorry, Rope, Rope in the, the wind. wind. He's wearing this wide black and blue striped shirt, and it stands out so much. It's so awkward looking, and it's a good cover. 
But it's the, it's this weird, I don't know, it just has this weird standout. And then it gets even weirder. Is it in pieces, the next one? Uh, or I the... think so, yeah. With the black and white checkerboard. Checkerboard, yeah. And it's even weirder. And you're like, wow, that is a very bold statement for a country musician to make. Mm. And then finally, I, oh crap, I forgot the name of the I album. I think it's The uh, Chase. Red and Black. No, it's a uh, Pick Up the Pieces. Oh, that's In Pieces. In so pieces. The Chase was in before. In Pieces, yes, yeah. is in the pe- one that has the red and black red checkerboard. Red and black, yeah. It's a weird looking album. And then after that, it's just a super close up of his eye. Just a gigantic eyeball on the cover of his. It's like, is this a country album or like Genesis? What Ooh. is going on here? It's just a huge eyeball. And I can totally after, see that as a Genesis cover And then after that, too. it's just all, um, it's pictures of him posing on different ranches. Well, it is about him. And it is uh, slowly getting more and more airbrushed as he gets older. Well. No offense to Garth Brooks, but uh, that last one, we can we can tell. Are we talking about Gunslinger or, uh, uh, or the... The newest one. The newest one. Fun. Uh, not fun. Gunslinger. Gunslinger. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. What else? That's one thing. That's one thing. Uh, anyway. Oh, I got more information about the album cover oh, too. There's more. So the art direction was done by a woman slash company. Uh, the woman's name was Virginia Team, uh, and her company was called Virginia Team Design. Huh. She also did designs for Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, Shania Twain, Vince Gill, Roseanne Cash, and a series of recordings called the MCA Masters Series. Which you would probably recognize if I showed you some of these covers. Probably. Because they were the album covers have this really distinctive like box design. Mm. So there's like white or orange around the outside and then an image in the center with stuff spilling out of it. Okay. It's a lot of country, it's a lot of jazz, it's a lot of I know exactly what you're instrumental talking about. musics. Yeah, exactly. Everybody recognizes them. Everybody in music recognizes them. Nobody knows anything about Virginia them. Virginia team. Yeah. The photograph Duh. was by a man named Jerry Joyner, who also did a children's book uh, titled 13, mm. which for some reason really stood out to me because last week we talked about, uh, I should have written his name down, but he also did a children's book so the, two weeks ago. The Bare Naked Ladies guy? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He also did a children's book. And I was like, that's funny that that came up two shows in a row, mm. but they both did children's books. Anyways, 13 is a highly regarded children's book specifically for its visuals, and it's right. very stunning looking. If I'm, you want to go look it up. I'm going to check it out. You had- uh, last thing we got to talk about. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry. Two more things we got to talk about. Let's talk about uh, the difficulty of listening to this album first. Go on. So uh, you, it's hard to find Garth Brooks music. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I was, at first, I was really upset by this. I was like, are you freaking kidding me this is another rich musician he's already made it and he's like no i gotta i gotta, I gotta keep it where i can control it and i gotta i have I'm my own gonna, streaming service i've got my own streaming service you have to buy it through garthbrooks.com and i was really upset by that yes uh and uh, i got looking into it he actually does have you can stream it through amazon music right or purchase physical media on amazon music and i was like whatever <laughs> then i actually got looking into it uh <laughs> and it turns out it's actually um one of the cases where i now that I know this information, I fully agree with him. So he specifically signed a deal with Amazon Music after looking, talking to Apple, talking to Spotify, talking to a whole bunch of different uh, streaming services. And Brooks said uh, he was attracted to the retail behemoth Amazon because of its commitment to old models of the music business in addition to the new. Brooks said it's foolish to give up on physical music sales, pointing out that half of Adele's historic record numbers were for CD sales. Quote, I was looking for one company that did it all. Out of the blue comes Amazon, offering streaming, physical, and digital music, said Brooks. I took it then, and I still take it now, as a godsend and a miracle. Uh, Brooks told the audience uh, at South by Southwest in 2017, uh, another reason he signed with Amazon was that they agreed to sell digital versions of his music as whole albums and not just singles. Um, I do like that. Brooks clarified that the full album model is one that nurtures songwriters. Normally, songwriters will get a cut of whatever album they get a song on, even if that particular song isn't one of the album's most popular singles. Really? This allows them to keep working on the craft until, as Brooks said, quote, the stars align and they write that hit. Uh, Quote, from 2000 to now, Nashville has lost over 84% of its songwriters. We must reinvest in the songwriter. We must take care of them because that's where it always starts. Oh, so now my respect just has to go up for them, doesn't it? Right? Because you think about... This album sold 18 million copies. Yeah. And there's a couple of dud, duds on these records, on this record that was were written by people that aren't him. Yeah. That are still collecting because this album keeps selling. Yep. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. That's pretty good stuff. That was, uh, I was very- Son uh, of a bitch. Right. Garth Brooks. I read that and I was like, ah, oh, 
actually, I kind of like that. Right, good it's for him. Respectful. Last thing we've got to talk about, because it's kind of against the stereotype. Turns out Garth Brooks is a huge supporter of gay rights. Yes. I had no idea. You didn't know that. I did not know that, and I feel like an idiot now. In a 1999 interview with George Magazine, Brooks said, if you're in love, you've got to follow your heart and trust that God will explain to us why sometimes why we sometimes fall in love with people of the same sex. Um, lyrics in his song, We Shall Be Free. We Shall Be Free, exactly. Features the line, when we're free to love anyone we choose, which has been interpreted as a reference to gay relationships. Oh, it was uh, a huge deal when that song came out. He won a Glad Media Award yeah. in 1983 for that song. He's also, in 2000, he appeared at the Equality Rocks Benefit Concert for Gay Rights and sang with George Michael. And it turns out his half-sister, Betsy Smittle, mm-hmm. who sadly passed away in 2013, uh, was a well-known musician. She had her own album uh, called Rough Around the Edges. She was part of uh, Garth Brooks' band for some years. Uh, she also worked with the late country star Gus Harden and a lot of other musicians in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, she was also a lesbian. Um, Brooks has credited her with some of the inspiration for his support for same-sex marriage. Mm. Yeah, I honestly had no idea. And I like I like it when somebody bucks the stereotype. The stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's sadly, you know, the stereotype isn't always true. Um, and more often than not, it's not true. That's why it's a stereotype. That's why it's a stereotype. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was interesting and I thought that it was probably uh, something we should talk about for a second. Yeah, that's uh it is it is important to him. Yeah. Um, oh, that's cool. There's a part in that same documentary where they cover that pretty extensively about how how he was losing fans because of the We Shall Be Free. And he's like, I don't really give a shit. I don't care <laughs> how many people I lose. This is important. This is this is something that needs to be talked about and sung about. And I'm not going to shy away from it. And of course, with that kind of platform, <laughs> what better voice to do it? Yeah. And like say, no, I'm talking about it and I don't care if you don't come to my concert. Somebody else will. Yeah. Like, don't worry. Lots of somebody else's will. Don't I still fill the stadium. Don't you worry about it. I uh, I had a whole section in here and I cut it out of my notes. Oh no. Uh but uh it was his last tour. The on, stadium tour? Yeah. If you yeah. go on his website and look at the stadium tour numbers, <laughs> every single stadium that he's in, they have like something that was the first or a huge right. record 84,000 people in Nashville. Biggest yeah. concert in, in that stadium's history. Yes. Fastest then, ticket sales in that stadium's history. Exactly. It's it's unbelievable. If it's, if it's all true, it's Oh, I amazing. believe it's true. And I think you're right. I believe it's true. But uh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So should we do it? Should we let's, do a track by let's track? Do, but let's do a track by track. No, it starts out with a thunder rolls. Be, yeah, the album begins with a storm rolling in. Yeah. Very indicative of the career that was about to become. So this song was fourth. It was the fourth and final single mm-hmm. of the record and his sixth number one hit. Yeah. Already. Second uh, album, sixth number one. Right. It tells the tale of a man who's been cheating on his wife. He, of course, not wanting her to find out and her not wanting to believe that it's true. This song could easily be a rock song. Easily. If you take away his voice which I'm not saying you should because his voice is super strong and powerful. This could have easily dominated the pop chart as well. Uh, And the visual is super strong, right? So this song was written by Garth Brooks and Pat Alger. uh, And the song was originally given to Tanya Tucker in 1988. Uh, She cut the song, but ended up not putting it on the album, which in this weird world of country music puts the song basically back up for grabs. If you don't put it on your album. So Garth and his producer, Alan Reynolds, felt it was uh, one of the strongest Garth had ever written uh, up till that point. So they were happy when Tucker passed. Garth would record it for no offenses, but at the suggestion of Reynolds, left the fourth verse off of it. Which was actually suggested by Tanya Tucker's producer. Uh, yeah. Like it was added in specifically for Tanya Tucker and then kicked back out. Kicked back out. And Garth Brooks recorded it. However, he always performs the fourth verse live. Yeah. And that verse is really the culmination of the story of the song. Wife goes back in, grabs her pistol, determined that this won't happen to her again. Uh, and even though that verse won't, uh, wouldn't get radio play, Brooks did put it in that part of the music video, which is where the controversy begins. And here's a piece right here. She's waiting by the window when he pulls into the drive. She rushes out to hold him, thankful he's alive. But on the 
wind and rain A strange new perfume blows And the lightning flashes in her eyes And he knows that she knows And the thunder rolls And the thunder rolls The thunder rolls And the lightning strikes Mm. So Brooks was determined to portray the fourth verse in the video, hoping to connect the two versions of the song, knowing that he would be playing this song live. Hmm. So he wanted that to be represented, even though he wasn't releasing that as the single. He was also determined to portray the cheating husband himself in the video so that everyone would despise this guy by the very end of the video. <laughs> the head of his label screened the video for industry women, who fully supported its release as a powerful statement against domestic violence. On May 1st, the day after it was released, TNN, the Nashville network, pulled the video. And a day later, CMT, Country Music Television, also banned it, saying, We are in the business of entertaining, not to promote or condone gratuitous violence or social issues. <laughs> Big mistake. Yeah. So TNN wanted a disclaimer read by Brooks before the video, which he refused to do. He said that they could use a disclaimer if they wanted to, but he refused to compromise his vision of the video, so he did it anyway. Uh, and the fire began to spread. Uh, because it had been pulled so quickly, though, not many people had seen it yet. But they had heard about the controversy, so people were requesting it nonstop. <laughs> Women's shelters, radio stations began doing fundraisers for victims of domestic violence. And it brought that topic very much into the national conversation like it hadn't been uh, before. And in turn, sold a lot of records for this guy. Yeah. And I remember seeing this video soon after on VH1's pop-up video and knowing it was at least interesting, right? The music didn't strike me then because just wasn't a fan, but the subject matter sure did. Yeah. And the video would end up winning a few country music awards, got nominated for a Grammy, it's an excellent song, and it's certainly an eye-opener. And it also helped me to realize that I prefer this style of country music. It is so uniquely country and also something else. He's not trying to disguise his voice. The twang is there yeah. and prominent. So much of current country doesn't want to be that. Well, so much of current country is... Pop music that somebody threw a steel guitar effect on right. a regular guitar. Right. They use drum right. machines. Yeah. They use modern sounds. They try to eliminate those voices and elements that make it distinctly country so it all sounds the same and kind of vanilla. Yeah. It sounds poppy. There, frankly, isn't a lot of character or texture to the current sounds. Uh, but this song, more importantly, this sound is what intrigues me about Garth Brooks over any of the other country performers I'm familiar with. He is influenced by rock music, by folk, but he is unapologetically country with his voice and the elements like the slide guitar and stuff like that that he waves around. It's authenticity, man. <laughs> That's what it's all about. That's exactly what you want to hear. You want to hear someone like, I'm a country, I'm a country music performer, and I'm going to sound like I am a country music performer. Yeah. And that's what you want to hear. It's funny that you keep bringing up that this is a very uh, rock sounding song yeah because there's a fantastic cover by heavy metal band all that remains yeah from uh 2017 oh what was the name of the album madness it's a really good album and mm -hmm. it's a really fantastic cover and you would not know that that song has any country roots to it hearing their cover it's not like crazy like real like screamy heavy metal right it's just a very slow metal cover of it it's very very good awesome yeah, check that out. The next song on this one is A New Way to Fly. Mm. Like I said, blue and dark. Yes. Uh, really classic country with this one. It's certainly the first song that is way, uh, that is that way, like real dark. The subject matter of this song continues along that blue path. You know, lyrics aside, this song, though, benefits from some of the fantastic musicians that appear on this record. Mm -hmm. And. There are many of them. Yes. Country music is very much a collective experience with uh, musicians coming and going and appearing on some tracks on a record and then not others. Uh, this album has 
22 musicians and al- almost 40 backing vocalists. Many of them appear on one track, but still. Yes. still it's that's still, a lot. It's a lot. 40 is a lot. 22 musicians is a lot. Uh, this song was written uh, by, uh, co-written by Kim Williams. Mm-hmm. And uh, Garth Brooks. Yes. He was a songwriter uh, born in the 40s. Um, he was involved in an accident in the 1970s at a glass factory in which he was severely burned over most of his body. Oh, God. Uh, he underwent over 200 surgeries oh. and endured, like, so much pain. And when you have that context and listen to this song, which is really about people finding ways to numb their pain, it, you know, it's a story about people who have endured heartache yeah. and head to the bar to make them feel good. Uh, they don't care about all the time they waste or the money they spend as long as at the end of it they are able to, quote, find a new way to fly. And it's actually a beautiful song when you know that story, that context behind it, which you don't get. And that's that kind of a disconnect when the songwriters are coming from outside of, like, the entity that is, yeah. like, the band. Like, you would know that. If you were listening to a, you know, an REO Speedwagon record, you would know, you know, because you've seen them in videos and stuff, you know that who wrote the song. And, yeah. And, but there's so much underlying pain with this guy that, you know, that context brings a whole another uh, layer to the song. Um, you know, by itself, it's a pretty standard country song. But yeah. you dig a li- little bit deeper and it's really good. And it's for sure one of Brooks's lesser known songs and it's not one i remember hearing uh before this before i sat down to do research but i would also say that this is like the superior vocal performance on the record Hmm. i'd say this is the best vocal performance that he did on this record and the production is pretty good you know it gets a little schmaltzy and predictable later in the record as we move forward but at this point it's really really sharp you have something about this record yeah i was gonna say this uh Steel guitar on this number is uh, by Bruce Bowden, mm. uh, who's worked with Kenny Rogers, Brooks and Dunn, Keith Urban, Lone Star, Pam Tillis, Lady Annabellum, Kenny, Shania Twain, among a humongous list of other people. That's a pretty significant list. Yes. He's but, no uh, slouch. No. But uh, steel guitar is one of those instruments that there's so few people that play it well. Play it well. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, well, I'm not going to say there's a lot. There's a few people that play it, but there's so few people that play it really well. The ones that do end up in every single country song that uses a steel guitar. Well, it's such a unique sound. Yeah. And it's instantly like identifiable like a banjo. Yes. We've talked about the banjo before. It's like there's no denying that's, that's a fucking banjo. Yeah. And when you hear the the slide guitar, the st- or you said steel guitar? Steel guitar, yeah. Yeah. As soon as you hear it, you're like... Well, I know what that is. Yeah. And it's it's great. It's a I mean it's just a perfect sound. I think technically it's a steel pedal guitar. Steel pedal but... guitar, yes. I enjoy it. Yeah. Uh two of a kind. Mm-hmm. Working on working on a full on house. On a full house. You know what this is, Matthew. What's that? Oh it's, it's a, a fox song. <laughs> oh I said it right here. <laughs> oh, I believe we found it. It's uh every album's got one. And... I think we're venturing into honky tonk area, I are we? You are correct, yes. And I do love a good Double entendre. No, oh, and there's a lot of them in this. Album. Albeit in this disguised song. in a poker metaphor. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh boy. <laughs> uh, this one's co-written by uh, Warren Haynes, Dennis Robbins, and Bobby Boyd. By Warren Haynes has long been associated with the Almond Brothers, mm-hmm. Government Mule, and has also played with the Grateful Dead spinoff. I guess it's a Grateful Dead spinoff. Phil Lesh and the Dead. I'm guessing that's a Grateful Dead spinoff. Uh, the song was actually recorded and released by Dennis Robin, mm-hmm. Robbins in 1987 and actually charted. And uh, Bobby Boyd was a country writer for years and years and just recently passed away. Yeah. Um, it has this really old country styling, and the song itself is pretty fun. It's the kind of song I would want to hear if I went to a country bar. Yeah. This is it, right? Uh, Garth had this to say about how the song got to him. He said, The song came to me through John Northrup. He was doing a demo deal, and Two of a Kind was one of the four songs he was pitching for a demo. When I heard it, I said, I wish you all the luck on your deal, but if for some reason it falls through, I'd love to have this. 
He called me three months later and told me I could have it if I wanted it. I immediately cut it, and to this day, even though it's a small, lighthearted song, it's one of the strongest parts of our live show, and it is. People just seem to connect with this song. This is, this is a big point to writers and artists out there, especially myself, that sometimes intense gets the point across, but don't forget to show them your sense of humor. And I think that's such a big deal. Yeah. Don't forget, you're allowed to be funny. And have a good time. Yeah. It doesn't all have to be serious. Enjoy yourself. One of my favorite parts of being, uh, this, is, this isn't even in my notes, but one of my favorite parts of being a, a Rush fan over the years is- Are you a Rush fan? Uh, someone said that. Oh, okay. And I guess it's true. Whatever. But one of my favorite parts of that is knowing that their music itself is very serious. But these guys are comedians- at heart all the time. And their stage shows represent that. There's a reason why Getty Lee always had like, he had a, he had a, a bunch of dryers behind yeah. him. He had a bunch <laughs> of chicken, rotisserie chicken ovens behind him because they, they're like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. And I think that's a big reminder for artists out there is like, you got to remember to have a good time. Yeah. And you know, and while I think that the the tone of the entire record here is serious and blue, there are a couple tracks that kind of break that mold, and this being one of them. And I think you know, that's an important thing to consider. You don't want to lose your audience in the sadness of a record, unless you're the Cure. <laughs> but like, in which case, it's completely fine, right? And like Glenn Phillips said when we interviewed him, it's important to have that light, not just shadows. Yeah, right. You got to have you got to have both, and then there's a. I think there's a unique aspect to Garth Brooks uh, that I that I don't get, or that I do get in a lot of artists that I listen to, and it's absent in a lot of country music, which is why I don't gravitate to it. He has emotional authenticity in his voice. So even though this is not a blues song, his voice is so rich, and it demands your attention, serious or not. You know, you're instantly like called to it. And and you know it right away, and it, it's just a great song. I I really like it. Yeah, yeah. I like that it's fun. I like that it's a fun song, and that it's uh, like you said, it it lightens up the the deepness of the rest of this album. You got to throw it on there every once in a while. Yeah, you don't want to become a victim of the game, <gasps> which is the next song. Is it? <sighs> oh my gosh! How did you know? I don't know. It's, uh, it's a slow, sad breakup song. Oh my gosh! You just went from having fun to let's have a breakup. <laughs> so this song is written by Garth and co-written by Mark D. Sanders. Sanders also wrote the very famous song "I Hope You Dance" by Leanne mm -hmm. Womack, and is probably the most popular father-daughter wedding dance song of the last thirty years. This song was also recorded by Garth's future wife. Trisha Yearwood on her debut album. Oh. So funny story about them. Maybe not funny. Could be ironic. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they were both in Nashville at the same time in the late 80s before either of them had hit it big. And they were recording demos for other people. And they were singing on a song together. And this was 1987, two years after Brooks had married his first wife. Apparently, when he and Trisha sang together, Brooks was instantly blown away. And his record producer asked him what he thought of her after she had left, and he said, I feel like I just met my wife. And the producer <laughs> apparently responded with, yeah, we get that a lot with her. <laughs> it's like, oh, you realize you just got married, right? Well, I feel like I met my wife. Well, she's not here. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I just met my wife. Well, that's weird. Uh, this isn't one of my favorite songs on the record at all. Yeah. But it's saved by his voice again. And, and I'm sure it's something about the mix. Randy can probably attest to this. But his his vocals are so upfront uh, in the mix that it sounds like he's talking right to you. Like, yes. You listen to it in headphones. It's forward in the mix. And if there are two or three weak tracks on the record, this is for sure one of them. But it's mm. not horrible. There's just too many strong songs on the record. There's bound to be a few... Uh, that miss. However, musicians are fantastic. Yes. The slide guitar is really, really good. Again. Again. You want to move on to it? Oh, the, you say the, it. The hit what? of this say album, I think. Go ahead uh, say friends it. Friends in Low Places. I have friends in Low Places. I do too. 
but uh, <laughs> probably not as many as uh, Garth Brooks or uh, Earl Bud Lee or Dwayne Blackwell. It's the first single from the record and a yes. huge hit. Kyle, do you have some of the vital statistics for this song? Uh, I do. It spent four weeks at number one on the Hot Country Songs, won both the Academy of Country Music and Country Music Association Awards for a 1990 single of the year. It actually came out 21 days before the album, and I don't know how true this story is. Ooh, I like stories. But there is a rumor that uh, the reason why they they actually rushed the album to release, and the reason being that uh, this single was only supposed to come out about a week before the album was released, and Garth Brooks' mother somehow accidentally leaked it to a local radio station. Oh, no, I heard, and, I've heard that many times. Uh, and uh, so they you know, Thanks, accidentally, in quotation marks, Whoops. Uh, so they quickly rushed the album to get it out a couple of weeks early. Again, how true that is, I still have my doubts, but uh, I believe it. I, I would say that there's some truth behind it because I, I did read it in five or six different sources. So, so, if there ever was a country music anthem, a quintessential country song, a song that best personifies the mentality of the country music fan, not the intelligence, don't send me hate mail. I'm not suggesting the country music fan is stupid. I'm referring to the mentality, the disposition, if you will. This is that song. It's co-written by Dwayne Blackwell and Earl Budley. Like you mentioned, it was the last demo session that Garth did before he became a star in his own right. Uh, after recording it for them, he identified it with it so much that he asked the songwriters if he could hold on to the song instead of them shopping it to other artists, as was the usual practice. And they said yes, which was a huge deal because at the time he hadn't even released his first record yet. Yeah. So that's a lot of trust. And this is one of the first country songs I remember listening to when Heather and I started dating. My feeling about country music at that at that particular point would be considered a, quote, great disdain. <laughs> I didn't hate it. I just didn't respect it. It all sound, quote, sounded the same and was about crying in your beer and losing your horse and shit like that. Basically, I was young <laughs> and stupid and wasn't really willing to give things like that a shot because I was convinced the music I liked was better, right? It's naive, silly. But because I was so captivated with Heather, I was willing to <laughs> listen to it occasionally, but not without constant, you know, less than pleasant comments. <laughs> and really, I'm actually being super nice to myself. Uh, I was a dick. However, this song was a touchstone for me. It's really the first one that I tolerated and kind of liked. The, the sing-along aspect of it was important because I could sing along too and feel like I was understanding her a little bit better. And I mentioned the fans' disposition in the song, and it's all right here. Well, I'll be as high as that ivory tower You've heard the background of this song, right? What's that? So uh, Earl Bud Lee said the idea for this song was born when he and some songwriting friends uh, gathered around for lunch one day at the Tavern on the Row, a popular Nashville eatery. Uh, when the check came, Lee realized he had forgotten his money. He was asked how he was going to pay for it, and he replied, don't worry, I have friends in low places. I know the cook. <laughs> Lee and his songwriting partner, Dwayne Blackwell, immediately recognized that the line, friends in low places, had potential, uh, but they didn't act upon it immediately. A few months later, Lee and Blackwell were at a party celebrating a recent number one hit by another songwriter. Uh, they began to talk about the dormant friends in low places idea, and at that very moment, it all started to come together in a song, Lee said. Because nothing else was available, they wrote the song on paper napkins. Uh, when the songwriters polished Friends in Low Places, they contacted Garth Brooks to see if he would record the demo for them. Hmm. And that's how it was born. It's got everything, Kyle. Yeah. You got beer, mm -hmm. which if you listen, you can hear a beer can opening at one point of the song, mm -hmm. which I'm still pissed off about because you can't hear my beer bottle opening right now. Right. Twist off. You got boots. You got whiskey and blues. It's painted so well and throw in the huge 
chorus singing it with him. And of course, you have the making of one of the biggest hits of his career. And there's a great essay by a Chuck Klosterman who summed it up like this. He made songs that satisfied all the same needs as Bruce Springsteen's did, except with a little less sincerity and a little better understanding of who his audience was. Friends in Low Places was as effective as pop music ever gets. It's a depressing song that makes you feel better. (laughs) Singing along with that song was like drunkenly laughing at a rich person and knowing that you were right. It's a song that makes you want to get drunk out of spite. Garth told stories about blue-collar people who felt good about what their bad life symbolized. Like, it's perfect. (laughs) It's perfect. And of course, Kyle, there is a third verse that is not on the record, but is always played live. Yes. Do you have it in your notes there? Uh, I don't have the whole verse, but I do know that the uh, last few lines changed, culminating in, uh, just wait till I finish this glass, then sweet little lady, I'll head back to the bar, and you can kiss my ass. Yes. Biggest reaction of the concert. Always. Why? Because it's so fun. Yeah. It's relatable. And you feel like you just got invited to the biggest party going on at the moment. Isn't that what we want with live music? Ah, Shit, I miss concerts, man. (laughs) Ah, It sucks. Stay inside. Do not go out. Ah, That's what... People want to be involved in that collective experience and and just yell, kiss my ass at the top of their lungs. It'll, It'll happen again. And I guarantee... You know, Garth Brooks was supposed to do that stadium tour starting at the end of 2020. Yeah. Uh, and I guarantee he'll be one of the first artists that are back out there when it's safe to do it. He was supposed and, to open uh, Allegiant Stadium. Yeah. And I guarantee that that tour is going to be huge. Oh, I'll be there. I wouldn't be surprised if it opens at Allegiant Stadium. It should. I wouldn't be surprised if they flip the dates around and start it there. I like that idea. Super Bowl weekend. Do it the Saturday right before the Super Bowl. Oh, for God's sakes, no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that city will be locked up tighter than tom yeah, thumbs yeah. <laughs> uh, wild horses yep co-written by bill shore and david wallace uh i love the twangy guitar in this song it's very nice it's not one of my favorite songs on the record but i do love the guitar sound but it's first rate musicianship it's a lovely song about a man trying to choose between uh, uh, uh rodeo and uh his woman or is it? Or is it? Is so, it possible the rodeo is actually a bunch of loose, sexy sex with <laughs> other women? That's what I think it's about. Oh, okay. Well, then good. I'm on the right track. He did re-record the vocals on this song and released the song as a single 10 years later in 2000. Oh. And it rose up to number seven on the country charts. <laughs> it's like, wait, did you already do this? Yeah, but I re-recorded the vocals. <gasps> I oh, love it so it's more. better. I think the song is about a guy who isn't faithful to his lady. With that overwhelming uh, kind of blue sad line running through it. Lots of songs about infidelity. But it's written from the point of view of a rodeo cowboy who's constantly on the road. At least it's not a rodeo clown who's constantly on the road. I could be wrong, but it it's a little too on the nose, you know? Yeah. But whatever. Yeah, not one not one of my favorites no, on it this isn't. album. But, no, it's uh, it's not it's not a great song. Making a lot of money for those uh songwriters, so that's good for them. Bill Shore and Dave Wills? Yeah. Yeah. Unanswered prayers. I believe this is uh, one of my wife's very favorite songs by Garth Brooks. It is certainly a beautifully written song. And if you're a spiritual person, which I would say I'm not anymore, it's a lovely sentiment Mm. that sometimes the man upstairs chooses to ignore the things you're asking for because he knows something better is in store for you. And that's, uh, I go on a soapbox here about how that's easy it's an easy rationalization for a religious person to say, I prayed for this. I didn't get it. Well, the reason I didn't get it is because something else was better. Hmm. So if I got it, would that have been? So either way you win, like I win and I win. So whatever. That's neither here nor there. There's a whole Lifetime original movie based on this song. I know. Uh, starring Eric Close and Samantha Mathis. Samantha Mathis. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Came out in 2010. That's nuts. So it was written by Garth Brooks, Larry Bastian, and Pat Alger again. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Brooks and Alger worked on it for a while without the title and that key line. They were walking down the street with Bastian and explained how they were stuck with the song. And he said, you should call it Unanswered Prayers because some of life's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And there you have it. And here's a little bit right here. 
Sometimes I thank God For unanswered prayers Remember when you're talking To the man upstairs And just because he doesn't answer Doesn't mean he don't care Cause some of God's greatest gifts Are unanswered Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a great line from Garth about performing this song every night, because he does. Uh, and by the way, it's a powerful song to be played live. See, he holds 19,000 people or 75,000 people or whatever in the palm of his hand for this song. And like I mentioned before, it's like he's singing to you and you alone. Anyway, the quote is, Every time I sing this song, it teaches me the same lesson. Happiness isn't getting what you want. It is wanting what you've got. I'd say that's a really tough realization for most people, to enjoy what's in front of you instead of wanting the other thing, whatever that other thing happens to be. And it's the difference between happiness and contentment, I guess. But that's a very, it's a very strong statement. I know that this song gets played live and t-mobile and i look over and my wife's just bawling her eyes out it's like well there you go yeah it's definitely a tearjerker <laughs> i feel like it's uh there you have it yeah. <laughs> uh so according to brooks the song is based on a true story quote man unanswered prayers was a big part of my heart that went out on that record true life thing that happened to sandy and myself in october of 89 i saw my old high school flame and i can say this now At the time, I couldn't. For the first two years of my married life, I really thought the girl that was for me was still that girl that was in high school. And now, man, just the realization that what you have is the best for you and the best you could ever do in your lifetime sure makes you sleep well at night. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to me that this song... Because it's such a cliche. It's such a, sure. such a, you know, you know. oh, I saw somebody from my past and then I reevaluated my life. That's such a cliche, but uh, apparently based on a real life uh, situation for Garth Brooks. And cliches work. Yeah. But they're effective. It's almost like it's the same old story. Hmm. What, is that the next song? That's the name of the next song. Same old story? Yeah. It's another song not written or co-written. By Brooks. Yep. Tony Arata. And what I'm starting to realize is that my least favorite songs are the ones he was not involved in. Hmm. That's pretty telling, huh? Yeah. Tony Arata, correct. He also wrote one of Garth's biggest hits and for sure Heather's favorite Garth Brooks song, The Dance, ah. which is an excellent song. Uh, but this one is a miss for me. It's pretty schmaltzy fluff. Yeah. It's about a guy that wants to be with another woman, but he can't because he's stuck with the one he's got. Another song about infidelity, real right? or imagined. Uh, but the uh, the couple is clearly checked out of the relationship yeah. and ready to she, move on. She holds him tight and one, he thinks about another woman. One is holding on and one is letting go. I believe that's right in there. I, I really don't have anything to say of interest. This, other than it sounds like a bit, it's a little crooner-esque. Like, it's got a 50s sound to it. Yeah, this could be like a Dean Martin song. That's I think it. it still fit. That's it. That's exactly what I said. Heather and I were listening to it the uh, last night. We were putting, putting the sound dampening stuff up. And she's like, yeah, it's very crooner-esque. I'm like, yeah, kind of like Dean Martin-y. Yeah. Writing key. We're right, we're right there. Really big, uh, really big thoughts. Really, really big shoe. Really big shoe. Mr. Blue? Mr. Blue. Wrapping up the blueness of this album. It's a straight up old fashioned sounding country song. It's something I would expect to see watching TV with my grandma in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I love it. It's a very good song. Written by uh, Dwayne Blackwell. Dwayne Blackwell, again, who also wrote, co-wrote Friends in Low Places yep. and also was one of the background singers on Friends in Low Places. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he wrote the song in the 50s for a group called the Fleetwoods. Yeah. It reached number one on the Billboard Top 100 in November 1959. Amazing how stuff comes full circle. Right. Like that. And I love this song. I love it. The sound of it is really comforting to me for some reason. Here's a little piece right here. I'm Mr. Blue When you say you love me Then prove it by going out on the spine 
Proving your love is untrue Call me Mr. Blue I'm Mr. Blue When you say you're sorry Then turn around Headed for the lights of town Hurting me through and through Call me Mr. Blue Producer Randy pointed out earlier that has a really uh, like '60s surf kind of vibe to it. I like that uh, that whole like beach noise. Yeah, but I love it. It sounds really. I have no idea why this song resonates with me so much, but it does. I don't know if it's the 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 key changes, like the really slight key changes in there. This is for sure the song I listened to the most when I was doing the research. And I guess some songs, you know, speak to you and some don't. Yeah. And I just kept listening to this song. I loved it. That's all I have about that. Yeah, that's about all I've got to say about it, too. <laughs> Great song. Uh, definitely, I, I agree. I think it's one of my favorites from this album. <laughs> but... <laughs> Let it out. Let it out. But... Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. Sorry, Randy. He was this. laughing first. I know. <laughs> He was laughing before I was. Uh, Wolves. Wolves is the last track on this album. It is a very short record, by the way. I would point out that it clocks in at a 35 minutes. Yeah. So it's uh, it's pretty short for 10 songs. Yeah. But Wolves, a song written by Stephanie Davis, who has written for a number of other country acts. Mm-hmm. And it's a fitting end to the record. It's a dark song for a dark record. And it's really one of my favorites on this record. Yeah. I, I like it. It's a great three-part story. You know, first verse is about the wolves actually coming and taking some of the cows on the farm in the middle of the night. Second verse is about another farmer who has lost his farm due to the creditors and the bills, stuff like that. And the wolves are those creditors. And the third verse is the narrator narrator living in fear of those bank wolves coming for him next. And it sounds like this. Charlie Martin and his family Stopped today to say goodbye Said the bank was taking over The last few years were just too dry And I promised that I'd visit When they found a place in town Then I spent a long time thinking About the ones the wolves pulled down Again. Very, uh, very... very good song for the times we're in now. His voice really translates that emotion, yeah. and you feel for the guy in the story. Isn't that what you want, though, out of a good song? To be moved, to sympathize with whoever you're hearing about? I think it's great, and I'm not, you know, I don't love everything about country music, but the, that sentiment is, the, the way he delivers it is great. Yeah. This this is one of those songs that uh, you know. There's a lot of like popular hits that he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of those songs that stuck, sticks in people's mind for some reason. And uh, in March of uh, this year, 2020, on March 23rd, in fact, Garth Brooks and his current wife Trisha Yearwood put on a Facebook live stream concert because you know everybody was in lockdown, and they took requests from fans uh, with the hashtag uh, Garth Request Live. But Wolves was one of the number one requested songs. Really? Yeah. And I would have never like pictured like oh yeah friends in low places in uh, American honky tonk bar association like something grain. like that yeah you know I mean there's ten other songs I could name that I would think would be more requested sure this one was top three two pina so. coladas <laughs> one for each hand yes I mean that's I would request that I'm requesting that right now uh, do you like pina coladas yeah I do like pina coladas do you like getting caught in the rain I do I'm not into show tunes. But do you have half a brain? <laughs> exactly half. <laughs> do you like make it? No. No, 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 no. Careful. So, sorry, sorry. Too far. I get That's... no kick from champagne, though. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Overall, I loved this record. I did, too. It was very, it, you know, 
like like we obviously said at the beginning of this, neither one of us is a big country music person. No. Um, but this is one of those records. I think that it's very accessible for people that are not country music fans, um, but not. it's also not pop. Right. Like a lot of modern country is very pop music. And so it's very easily accessible because you're just listening to a pop tune that somebody slapped a steel guitar over. Uh, whereas I think this is very much country, but it's good and mild enough that anybody could enjoy it. Yeah, there are a couple duds for sure, but there are usually some duds on a record. Yeah. It's not a big deal. I would say that this record won't turn me into a country music fan, but it definitely solidified my feelings that I am a Garth Brooks fan there for sure. He's an excellent singer, and it translates very well, and I am not afraid to say that I loved it. Let us know what you think. About uh, if you've heard this, if you're already listening to this album, if you're a huge country fan, if you've never listened to country music before, we want to hear from you. Where, where, where? Uh, you can email us. It's probably the quickest way to get a hold of us. Info at audiojudo.com. Uh, you can also check us out at facebook.com forward slash audiojudo, uh, Instagram and Twitter. We're at audiojudo. Yeah. If you like this episode and you want to hear more from Audio Judo, oh, yeah. I encourage you to check out our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash audiojudo where you can subscribe to a couple of different tiers, get access to our bonus mini episodes called Judo Chops, where we take a lesser-known artist and talk about them for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have episodes coming up about Billy Joel, Genesis, Sting, and Beck, plus oh, yeah. our annual holiday episode and the best of 2020. Also, if you want to get gifts like T-shirts, mugs, Cowboy hats or face mat? I'm not. I'm seriously. I don't know if the face. I don't know if cowboy hats is. I know there's face masks on there. I don't know about cowboy hats, but we should add that if we can. Yeah, if you want our logo on a bunch of shit, go to our website audiojudo.com and click on the shop button, mm -hmm. and we will talk to all you wonderful people in another couple of weeks. Indeed. Take Bye, care. everybody. No farts, no burps, no farts, no burps, no farts, no burps. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.